All right, Hebrews chapter 9, we've got the whiteboard. Uh, the reason that I've got the whiteboard uh, ultimately is that we need to do a little bit of teaching on this passage before we get into the main preaching part of it, okay? And so what I want to do is I want to draw a timeline out for you uh, to help you understand the end of the world. We're going to keep it simple and light here this morning. All right, something simple and light. Uh, now, I know the end of the world is always an intriguing and fascinating thing for people, uh, right? E even for those of you that read the church email that was mentioned, the end of the world. I I'm guessing, you know, it was one that, that kind of caught your attention a little bit. And especially living through this last year in 2020 with the pandemic and all the economic instability and all that, it's got people thinking even more like, is this it, right? Is this the end? Now this morning, I hope to not disappoint you uh, at all, but I don't have any shocking new prophecy or predictions to share with you or anything like that. But I do want you to understand from Scripture when the end of the world was, so that, number one, we know how to live in the current time we find ourselves in, and secondly, so that we can make sense of some of these Scriptures that can seem a bit confusing to us including one that we find at the end of Hebrews chapter 9, which we'll get to in a moment. Back when I was 21 years old, I found myself on a beach in Gulf Shores, Alabama, getting down on one knee and proposing to Brittany. It was a glorious day. It was a glorious day. Now, by, by me proposing to Brit, uh, uh, proposing marriage to Brit, and by her agreeing to that a proposal, the world as I had known it as a single guy ended. Right? That, that world ended. No longer were my decisions about schooling and future career. Like, no longer was I living in a world where my decisions were only had myself in mind. Right? Now the world of decision-making, I had to consider her as well. That world of, of decision-making as a single guy, that world ended. The world of living in a guy's dorm at college, that world was over, right? Now I needed to look into the married housing world and all the interesting people you meet in that world. The world of washing my bedsheets once a semester was coming to an end, <laughs> Right? I had to find out like, what grown, how often grown-ups washed bedsheets in their bedding. and Anything more than once a semester just felt excessive to me. I don't know. The world of singleness was over. The world of marriage was now here. However, we didn't get married for about a year because we thought it would be a good idea to torture ourselves. And so for that year of engagement, we were living in between two worlds. The world of singleness was fading away. The world of marriage had started to enter in, but it would not be fully realized until the wedding day. We were living in the overlap of two worlds. Church, when Jesus Christ put on flesh and came to earth, something apocalyptic happened in our world. 
And I don't throw that word around lightly, okay? When Jesus put on flesh and came to earth, something apocalyptic happened. When Jesus took on flesh and blood, and eventually that blood was poured out as a sacrificial sacrifice for our sins, it ended the world as humanity had known it, and it ushered in a new one. And so this morning... Where we are going in regards to the end of the world, we're gonna, this sermon's going to be outlined by three words, all right? When, where, and how. Those will be the checkpoints that we check back in on as we journey through this passage of Scripture, okay? When, where, and how. When, all right, when the Bible says the end of the world was. We'll then look at where, where Jesus' blood flowed and where it caused a world to end. Was it just on earth? Was it just in heaven? Or was it both? And then we'll look at how. In light of the when and where, how then sh- shall we live in this life? All right, so let's, let's pray and let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, we do need your help this morning. Uh, Father, I, I ask that uh, even bringing up the whiteboard here, Lord, that this would not complicate things, but Lord, it would bring clarity to the truth of your word. Um, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move and work in powerful ways this morning that you would awaken our hearts to your goodness and your grace and your glory. Lord, if there's anyone in here that does not know you, we ask that you would bring them to a knowledge of yourself, that you would bring them to a point of putting their faith in you to this morning. Uh, we ask for the, those that, that, that do know you, Lord, that you would stir in our hearts a stronger love for you and a stronger love for one another. Lord, move powerfully through your word today. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now you might be thinking, hey, we're in Hebrews. We're talking about Christ being the better priest. We're talking about his blood being the better sacrifice. Why in the world are we talking about the end of the world? And it's a valid question. It's a valid question. Look with me, though, at the second half of Hebrews 9, 26, because I do think the passage brings up things that need to be addressed. Hebrews 9, 26, the last half of it reads, But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That word ages is sometimes translated world or ages, right? But that's what we're referring to when we talk about worlds or ages. We're talking about this, this age. And we, here we see that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. You see, God's word in multiple places, it speaks of the end of the world or the end of the ages as not coming at the end of history, but in fact coming in the middle of history. And you'll remember how the book of Hebrews even started in Hebrews 1 verse 2. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And so how are we to understand this when we read so much of the New Testament and we read like people, I mean, I'm not going to take you to all the, the passages, but John and Peter and Paul, they speak as if they are in, knowing that they are in the last days, the end of the ages. How are we to understand this? Because they were writing things in the first century. It's now 2021. How are we to understand this? 
And here's where we're going to go to the whiteboard. Hopefully this is helpful to us because as we continue to go through the book of Hebrews, which we've titled this series, Jesus is Better, right? Because we want, the the scripture is teaching us that yes, Jesus is our better priest. He is our better king. He is our better prophet. He's our better word from God. He's offered up a better sacrifice for our sin. And we can say yes and amen to all of that. But this morning we're going to look at how he has also ushered in a better world. A better age. All right, and so for a second, I want us to think about what the people of God would have thought about the end of the world before Jesus came. Right? Let's try to get our minds into kind of the either the early Christians or the, or the, 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 uh, the Jewish people before the Messiah came. What were they thinking of when the end of the, the world was going to come? All right, so let's think of the horizontal plane here as being a a, a timeline, right? So we've got eternity past over here, eternity future there. We'll we'll start with kind of maybe creation here, and we'll go down the timeline here, all right? Okay. Then I want us to think about the vertical plane as being, uh, you know, down here being the, the earthly realm, and up here being the heavenly realm. You guys with me so far? All right. Now, the people of God, again, let's think back before Jesus came, how they would have been viewing the end of the world, okay? The people of God, before Jesus came, they would have been looking forward to the end of the world, and in their understanding, the end of the world would have come when Yahweh, when Yahweh would come in judgment. Yahweh would come in judgment, and he would usher in the reign of the Messiah. Yeah, the kingdom. He would usher in the reign of the Messiah. And so they viewed the age or the world that they lived in as one being marked by sin and death. And it's often, uh, it's often called, uh, excuse me, this age, right? We'll see this written throughout the scriptures uh, referring to this age. But when the Messiah would come, he would usher in a new age or a new world that is often referred to as uh, the age to come or the new age. And while this age was marked by sin and death, this age, the age to come was going to be marked by righteousness and life. And you could probably add peace to that as well. All right, so that's what they were looking forward to, the age to come. And they knew what the prophets had spoken about this age to come, that when the Messiah would come, when the kingdom was ushered in, what would happen? Well, he would defeat their enemies. Defeat their enemies. What else would happen? Sin would be judged. Dead saints would be resurrected, right? The resurrection would happen. I'll try to go a bit quicker. I'm I'm going too slow. There would be an outpouring of God's Spirit. And the Gentiles or the nations would be welcomed in to worship God as well. A new world or a new age, the age to come of the Messiah, would usher this all in. Like this age was marked by sin and death, but the age to come was marked by righteousness, life, and peace, where all these things would take place. 
And so this is what was in the minds of the people before Jesus came in regards to what the end of the world was going to look like. All right. In their minds, it wasn't the end of the world in their minds. Right. Wasn't uh, uh, so much of what we th- I'm not going to uh, make fun of things, but but it's just this is what they thought of when they thought of the end of the world. OK, so when Jesus shows up and he starts saying things like in Mark one, verse 15, he starts saying things like the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel. And then what we see happen through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection was that on the cross, his spiritual enemies were disarmed and defeated. On the cross, we saw sin, the sin of his people be judged. Then three days later, through the resurrection, right? We see him be the first fruits of the resurrection. We then see uh, uh, after his ascension, right? We see then the Holy Spirit be poured out. And we see in the life of the early church, the Gentiles being welcomed into the people of God. And now here we see Jesus, right, ruling and reigning, seated on his throne in heaven, ruling over this age to come, this new age. And so in a sense, it would seem like his kingdom, this new world, is already here. However, we also know that it will not yet be fully realized until his return. And then we'll have the new heavens and the new earth. And just so you know, whether whether you are, uh, depending on what your views of eschatology are, whether you're pre-mill or ah-mill or post-mill, and if you don't know what those terms mean, that is fine and probably good for you right now. Uh, But but this is something that really all across the board uh, we we can most likely agree on, all right? Okay, so his kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fully realized until his second coming, which is spoken about in our passage in Hebrews 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so this is why some have called Christ's kingdom the already, not yet kingdom. And you've probably heard that language spoken here often, right? We are living in Christ's kingdom, the already not yet kingdom. The kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fully realized until Christ returns. And so when we come to faith in Christ, you are essentially trusting that his work here on the cross, his work here on the cross was the end of the world of sin and death for you. You are essentially trusting that Christ took the end times judgment upon himself, the end times judgment that your sin deserved. When you come to faith in Christ, you are trusting that he bore that for you on your behalf, and he has then united you to himself in this new world, this new age to come. And so why does this matter? Like, is, isn't this just something that seminary students get to geek out over? And I've been in those rooms, and it does happen. 
But this matters for a couple of reasons, right? This matters for a couple of reasons. Number one, this helps us have a correct lens to see and understand God's word. Okay, because this helps us understand so much of scripture that at first could seem like a contradiction to us. For example, from uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 5 through 7, when he writes, even when we were dead in our trespasses, right, what happened? God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You've been raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, or the age to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now that verse can be really hard to understand if we don't have this lens to be able to see it, right? Because we read that and we think, okay, I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places, okay? But I'm also seated in an old dance studio in Franklin, Indiana, and my body is wearing down. <laughs> are, are, are both true? Yes. The already, not yet lens will greatly help us understand scriptures like this, right? But this also matters for a second reason. Because yes, this helps you make sense of God's word, but this also helps you make sense of your life. Because when you become a Christian, when you trust the work of Christ, on your behalf. This age, or this world, like, like, this is not what ultimately defines you anymore. It's this one that does. Right? This is why Paul can write a letter to Christians and call them saints, and then go on later in the letter to call them out for their sexual immorality and pride. Because he knows, and we know, that if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, new creation... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new world has dawned. The new age has come. So in Christ, you are defined by this world. In this new world, what is true of Christ is true of you. This is the world that defines you. But listen, until Christ returns, this old world keeps trucking along too. And so doesn't this help explain your life a little bit? It explains why your body, yes, you've been raised with Christ, but your body, you know, medically speaking, after the age of 25 is dying, right? It's, it's, it's starting the dying process on you. It explains why you still have to battle with temptation and sin. Yes, you are defined as a saint, but you still have to battle temptation and sin. Sin no longer enslaves you or defines you, but it is still present in your life and it will need to be continually killed and put to death to get you ready for the new world to be fully realized upon Christ's return. You see, we live in an overlap of worlds, an overlap of the ages. And the question is, what world do you belong to? Which one defines you? Which one do you love and find your identity in? You have many neighbors and friends and co-workers that belong to this world. And maybe some of you still belong to this world. You haven't yet trusted Christ to take the end of the world judgment that you deserved 
And listen, if you belong to this world, the end of the world is coming at you like a freight train. And when you die or when Christ returns, judgment is coming. I'm, I'm still in Hebrews 9. For those of you that think I'm not sticking to the text, look at Hebrews 9, verse 27. I'm going a little out of order to keep you on your toes. But Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Listen, if you belong to this old age, if you belong to this old world, you have every right to fear the end of the world. And isn't this what we see happen? Or happening? Because the end of the world is coming still for you. But if you belong to Christ, that world has already ended. And now you belong to the new world, the new age that is already here and will never end and will be fully realized when Christ returns. And so some of you, though, right now, some of you are going through things that are making you feel like it is the end of the world. When you're a kid, it's when you don't get the toy you wanted you feel like it's the end of the world. When you're an adult, it's when you don't get the more expensive toy you wanted and you feel like it's the end of the world. Or you don't get the job you wanted or you don't get the diagnosis you wanted or you don't get the politicians that you wanted. And it feels like it's the end of the world. Listen, if you're a Christian, it's not. In Christ, the end of the world has already happened and the new world has begun. You don't have to fear dying. For the Christian, like that world marked by sin and death, like you don't have to fear dying. That world has ended. So that's our first word, when. When is the end of the world? If you are in Christ, it has already happened. But then we move on to the word where. Where did the blood of Christ flow and end the world as we had known it? Was it just on earth? Was it just in heaven? Or was it both? Look at Hebrews 9, verse 23. Here we go. Now he's starting where he usually starts. Verse 20 at the start of the passage. All right. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All right, now these verses, what we're seeing here, it's the, the, this passage is helping us see the greatness of Christ's blood. 
It provided a better purification than the animals under the old sacrificial system could ever provide, right? They purified the the copies of the heavenly things here on earth, the shadows of the true substance which were up in heaven. And so animal blood, would it would go on the earthly tabernacle and the structures, and there would be this general kind of external purification that would happen. But the blood of Christ is better because not only did it not have to be repeated, like the Levitical priests would have to do, right, all the time with animal sacrifices all the time. Those sacrifices had to be repeated. Not so with Christ. His sacrifice was so superior that it was a once and for all sacrifice. How great is that? When we, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are not re-sacrificing Christ. His sacrifice was so superior, it was a once and for all sacrifice. We remember his sacrifice when we serve the Lord's Supper, okay? And last week, then, Pastor Kevin talked about some of the other ways that Christ's blood is superior than animals, right? Because it provides a purification for our conscience. There's an internal purification that happens, And that's definitely one of the reasons why the blood of Christ is better. You'll remember from uh, last week back in verse 14, Hebrews 9, 14, which says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so there is this internal purification that happens for those who trust Christ, right? He cleanses our conscience. But then I think there's also even a little more here than that as well, because it would seem to be saying that the heavenly places are being purified as well, which leads us to the question, why would the heavenly places need to be purified? It's a question I, I had at uh, Coffee House 5 last week with Pastor Kevin and Joshua. And Pastor Kevin then graciously stopped at verse 22 to really let me work that question out this week, which has been great. I appreciate that. Why would the heavenly places need to be purified? Well, let's think for a second. We, we could make some speculations, but I, I think there's, there's some biblical evidence here. Let's just think to ourselves for a little bit. Where, where was the first sin or rebellion committed? Was it in the garden or was it in the heavenly realm amongst the angels? All right. In, in Job, who do we see allowed in the presence of God? Almost like it was a normal thing for him to be in the presence of God, talking to God about Job. In Zechariah 3, verse 1, which we'll have this one up on the screen, who do we see standing in the presence of the Lord? Zechariah 3, verse 1 says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. We see the enemy in the presence of God. And what's he doing? He's accusing the high priest. And listen, if he's got dirt on the high priest, he's got dirt on you and me. But church, something glorious happened through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You see, the blood of Christ has, yes, purified our conscience. There's been an internal purification, but it has also purified the heavenly places as well. 
And because Christ has purified the heavenly places with his blood, you no longer have an accuser standing in the presence of God bringing a case against you. Revelation 12 gives us a bit more insight into this. So turn with me to Revelation 12. And let's just all acknowledge the general nervousness we feel as we're turning to Revelation chapter 12. I feel it. You feel it. I mean, not only are we going to Revelation, we're just pushing past even the letters to the churches, and we're getting to some of the the weird stuff, all right? I acknowledge that. And I also realize that there are many brothers and sisters that would interpret this passage differently, okay? So if there are certain camps that view Revelation as primarily being future events, right? These are just things that still haven't yet happened. However, I would say the majority of Christians throughout church history have viewed many of these things in Revelation as being things that have either already taken place or that were directly applicable to the church in the first century. Uh, But regardless of your view, a lot of people view Revelation 12, verses 7 through 12, as being a flashback, okay? There will be some that differ with me on this, but, but... most, a lot of people will view this as a flashback to events surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and events that took place in the heavenly realm in the first century, all right? And even if we disagree on this specific passage, we get to the same conclusion, all right, that the heavenly places have been purified and the enemy has been defeated, all right? So that's where we're going, all right? Even if you, even if you wouldn't go to this text, I think many, many of us would say this is a good text to go to. Revelation 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Anytime you see dragon, think the ancient serpent in the garden, right? And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you that dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. All right, I believe that this is describing what Jesus is talking about in John 12, 31, when he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, this world, be cast out. How can Jesus say that? He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. Like, judgment has come. And I'm going to take the judgment of my people upon myself. But not only that, now the enemy, the ruler of this world, this old age, is going to be cast out. Now, the point I'm trying to make is this. 
the sacrificial blood of Christ, which we're learning that it is better than anything, any animal sacrifice in the Old Covenant, right? And it's better than any animal sacrifice, not only because it was a once and for all sacrifice, not only because it can cleanse our conscience, but also because it has purified the heavenly places and defeated and disarmed the enemy. Which, which all Christians, regardless of your eschatology, agree on, right? It has purified the heavenly places, and it has defeated and disarmed the enemy. And listen, church, what this means is that we no longer have an accuser in the presence of God. We now have an advocate, and his name is Jesus Christ. Spurgeon once said this, commenting on Revelation 12. He said, the voice of the dragon has been silenced by the blood of the Lamb. Come on, Spurge, that'll preach. That'll preach. The voice of the dragon has been silenced by the blood of the Lamb. Now listen, yes, the accuser is still at work, right? He's not, not yet finally fully realized, defeated, but he's no longer in the presence of God accusing you. You now have Jesus in the presence of the Father advocating for you. Satan is no longer accusing us in the presence of God, but listen, he is still accusing us here on earth. And he's bringing accusations against us. He's bringing accusations against our brothers and sisters through means of the lies that he tells us. But what does God's word tell us? That we will overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony and by being willing to lay down our lives to proclaim the good news of Jesus. But the enemy is still accusing us here on earth. What, what does this look like practically? What does this look like practically? I think it's important we talk about this because I believe this has been one of the most dividing and destroying things that can infiltrate in and divide and destroy people and relationships. The enemy is no longer in heaven making accusations, but he is now here on earth making accusations. And one of the ways that this plays out is through people making false assumptions or false accusations of one another. And I realize that this can maybe seem like a small and insignificant thing, but it does major damage to Christ's church. And this is how it plays out. For example, two days ago, Dad gives us a little health scare, right? Yeah. Which I was reminded, thank you, Kirsten, like, I sent out a request to pray for him, and then no follow-up email, like, hey, it's okay. <laughs> So that's my bad, all right? But I, uh, this is my follow-up email. He's here. He's okay. We suspect maybe trying to get out of picking up the check at breakfast. We don't know. But uh, he's good. We're glad he's here with us, all right? So, so uh, dad gives us a little health scare. And then many of you start texting and calling me, which was great. I mean, our family, we felt very loved, very supported. But at some point, I just had to stop responding to people because I couldn't keep up. 
Uh, we were trying to, you know, coordinate getting dad's car home, and I still was canceling, rescheduling meetings, and we were having someone over Friday night, and I still had to write the sermon Saturday. And so some of you, I did not respond to. And so I'm sorry. <laughs> Please forgive me. <laughs> okay, I share that because I'm trying to think of something uh, that didn't actually happen to give us an example, okay? But what can happen is in those moments, and maybe this did happen with some of you, I don't know. What can happen in those moments is the part of you that can still be explained by the old world starts making false assumptions and false accusations. And in that moment, you can start telling yourself, well, he didn't respond to me because he doesn't like me. He probably replied to other people, but not me. Like, he probably skipped over my text to reply to other people, but not me. He's, he's probably upset with me about something I did or something that I said to him. And then you go into the mode of, well, forget him. See if I send him a text ever again. I mean, he says he was working on his sermon. This sermon's not even that great. What was he working on all that time, right? Maybe I'm describing your thoughts right now. You're like, oh man, he's, he's tracking with me. All right. Listen, if you let those false accusations and those false assumptions fester in you, it will do what sin always does. It will bring about some sort of death. It will bring likely some death to the love that you have for that other person. Or it might even bring about the death of that relationship altogether. How many marriages, how many friendships, how many families, how many churches have died because of false accusations and false assumptions. Now, why are false assumptions such a big deal? I would say false assumptions that you make in your mind are a sin. Why is it sin? It's a break of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. When you make a false assumption of your brother or sister in your mind, you are bearing false witness against them, even though you never verbalize it. You are lying about them to yourself. And then oftentimes, to make matters worse, once you lie about them, then you start to carry out judgment on them. When the Bible talks about judgment, it speaks of judgment in a couple of ways. The first way to judge is to discern between good and evil. And we are still to judge ourselves and others in that way. We are to help one another discern good and evil. But the other kind of judgment is a condemning someone, writing them off as a way to make them pay for their sin. And in most circumstances, church, that is not what we are called to do with one another. So what happens is after you make a false assumption about someone, you then judge them in your mind, you condemn them, you write them off. Like you're going to make them pay for what they did, even if it's just by you thinking more poorly of them. Now, the really sad thing about all this is that you, by harboring this resentment or this false assumption, you think you're making them pay, but in the end, the only one that's paying for it is you. False assumptions and bearing false witness against your neighbor, even in your mind, will cause you to self-destruct, and it will wreck your relationships with other people. 
And listen, if, this is, if that's you this morning, falling apart because of the false accusations of the enemy or your own false assumptions, I've got good news for you this morning. The Spirit of God has brought the blood of Christ to your heart and mind this morning and proclaims to you that in the blood of Christ, that world, that world of sin and death and lies and false assumptions, that world is over. Be freed from it. It's done. And the work, the Spirit applies to us the work that was accomplished for us. And so maybe even today, the Spirit wants to apply it to you today to free you from that. To say, you're dead to that. That's, that's, that's a dead world. That's old world stuff. In Christ, the end of that world has come upon you. And so go and confess it to God today. And then go to your brother and sister. This is what you say. If you need a script, go to your brother or sister. Say, hey, I love you. I'm struggling. When you you didn't respond to my text, let's say, I assumed it meant fill in the blank. And then ask them, is that true? I assumed it meant this. Is that true? Church, because Christ appeared at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and because he has ushered in a new world where his enemies have been defeated, sin has been judged, and his spirit has been poured out, our new lives are to be marked no longer by being deceived and divided by the lies of the enemy. That is old world stuff. And Christ came to end that world. No, we can, by the power of the Spirit, call out and expose the lies of the enemy and be healed and restored to one another. That's what needs to happen here. We're not going to be a church that is content to live in this. Christ ended that world. And so we've talked about the when. When did the end of the world come? It came through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Where did the blood of Christ flow and purify an end to the old world? Well, it has come to every person who through faith in Christ has been united with him and seated with him in the heavenly places who have now been cleansed. And so again, maybe someone here today, maybe some of you today, maybe some of our kids today have never trusted Christ, never trusted his work on our behalf, taking the end time judgment that our sin deserved. And through faith in him, we can now be united to belong to this world. Which world do you belong to? Which one do you want to be defined by? Which one do you love? Church, the Spirit brings the blood of Christ to you this morning and wants to apply it to you. Would you trust Him? Put your faith in Him. Where did the blood of Christ flow and purify and bring it into the world? Both in His people and in His place, in the heavenly places. The enemy's been disarmed, has been cast out of the presence of God. We no longer have an accuser in the presence of the Father. We have an advocate. And in light... In light of all this, in light of the when and the where, how then are we to live? How then are we to live? And I realize I I didn't leave a ton of time for this, but this will be 
the jumping off point where, where our city groups really uh, dig in this week. So as you're preparing for your city group, I want you to think through how then are we to live in light of the already not yet kingdom. But look with me now to finish our passage at Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on back up. But our, our passage gives us a little bit as to how we are to live in light of this. Hebrews 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. Church, what keeps us from eagerly waiting for him? Just, just think in your own head. What keeps us from eagerly waiting for him? Looking forward to his coming, and that word eagerly is with great care, with great diligence, with great patience. We are to be eagerly longing for that return when the kingdom will be fully realized. What keeps us from that? What keeps us from longing for the world to come to be fully realized? It's already here, but we're longing for it to be fully realized. And I think the opposite of eagerly waiting can be found in the life of Demas. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, Demas was a companion of Paul's that we were introduced to at the end of the letter to Colossians that we went through together as a church. He was Paul's companion, but later we see when Paul writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, Paul writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, age, same word, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Church, if you are in love with this present world, this present age, you will not be eagerly waiting for Christ's return. Why would you? Your flesh knows that's when it's going to end. Are you in love with this present age? And if so, you are in for a big disappointment because this world has already ended and will fully come to an end when Christ returns or when you die. But the way we eagerly wait for the return of Christ, the way we overcome the attacks of the enemy is not to fall in love with this present age. It's not to go the way of Demas. No, it's to fall in line with what we saw of the saints in Revelation 12, verse 11, which says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. No amount of good works or self-help or self-discipline or moralism. No, no religion will conquer the enemy and cause you to eagerly wait for our Savior. It is only the blood of the Lamb. Only the blood of Jesus. Faith in your own righteousness will not be strong enough to shield you from the fiery darts of the enemy. 
Only faith in the righteousness of Christ given to you can withstand the attacks. Only a love for Jesus and the life that, that, we, that testifies to his, his goodness and his grace, only a life that is willing to lay it down for the sake of God's glory, only that life is the one that will overcome. What's going to keep you from eagerly longing for his return? It is falling in love with this present age. Church, this is no longer what defines us. This is no longer where our identity is. In Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenlies. We've been united with him. In Christ, what's true of him is true of us. How then are we to live in light of the when and the where of the end of the world? We're not to fall in love with the old world that Christ came to end. And we are not to believe the lies of the enemy either through the false accusations or false assumptions that we experience. We might, yes, still have an accuser here on earth, but we have an advocate in heaven. And the blood of Christ has ended the world as we have known it. Therefore, may we eagerly pursue and pray for his new world to be fully realized here. Let's pray.